right now on Higher Journeys with Alexis Brooks. Hi, everyone. Alexis Brooks here from Higher Journeys. So glad that you are joining us once again today. Well, (laughs) I'm finding that with every show that I do, and typically what I will do is record the intro after I record uh, a show with a guest, I have to take a pause. I have to take a big sigh uh, because typically the conversations that we have here on Higher Journeys are hella deep. Today's show was no exception. Hella deep. You know, it's a little euphemism, but deep, you guys, because of the things that we talk about here, right? Because of the topics that we dare explore, because we are daring to crack the code of reality as we know it and kick the tires and and see what's really going on. Well, this case is no exception. This show, I should say, case, actually, we talked about a few cases, is no exception. My guest, Terry Lovelace, who's no stranger to this show, you might know Terry Lovelace's name uh, based on his relatively recent, shall we say, coming out about his own uh, lifelong encounters with non-human intelligence the publication of his first book, Incident at Devil's Den, which garnered uh, best-selling status. I mean, really, really kind of put him on the map when it comes to the contact phenomenon and all of the enigma that surrounded it. And then a follow-up book, which has been equally uh, captivating, called Devil's Den, The Reckoning, uh, kind of a continuation of uh, Incident at Devil's Den. Well, in today's show, we kind of dug into uh, Devil's Den, The Reckoning, because what Terry did was he took, he compiled, in addition to, of course, telling his own story, he, in this book, wanted to compile third-party accounts, because after the publication of the first book, he got a slew of people wanting to share their stories, and so he decided to put them, to compile them. Uh, as a collection of stories in a second book. And so we picked three that we decided to really dig in on and really kind of kick the tires on what may be going on. Each of them are unique, but each have common threads that tell us we're definitely dealing with something of of non-human origin, it seems. So it seems. So without further ado, I want to jump right in uh, and let you hear from uh, a conversation, more of a conversation between myself and Terry. I also want to remind you before we get into the show, We're going to continue this show, as you know, in our after show segment over on Patreon. So I do hope you will consider joining us there. And it it goes, uh, always we try to go a little bit deeper on the after show. So we could have gone for hours, guys. Let's get to it so you can see what I'm talking about right now. Uh, Thanks for watching Higher Journeys. And you're about to watch my conversation with Terry Lovelace. Well, welcome, everyone. Welcome back to Higher Journeys. And of course, if it is your first time here, we welcome you. I'm giddy today. You know why? Because I have, first and foremost, a friend, a colleague, yes, partner in crime, a face that you may know by now because Terry Lovelace has been on the show, gosh, probably about three or four times at this point. And the reason why it's, it's I think, fair to say we can have him back regularly is because he's always got new stuff to share. Terry Lovelace, if you haven't, if you're not familiar with his incredible work and his courageous work, um, I, I think I can, it's fair to say I can call you an experiencer of the enigma we call the ET contact phenomenon. His book, uh, First Incident at Devil's Den, and then the sequel, Devil's Den, The Reckoning, is jam-packed, you guys, with, uh, again, I'm going to say this enigma, this thing that is this elephant that's in the room 
for people like Terry, and I have a feeling for a lot of you that are watching, this idea of our regularly interacting with what I like to call non-human intelligence. Well, Terry, in his second book, and maybe we can put a screenshot up of The Reckoning, Devil's Den, The Reckoning, really goes a lot deeper, I would say, not only into some of the things that some of the loose ends he may have left in the first book about his odyssey, this this trip to Devil's Den State Park, which I really want to get into with you, Terry. But he, in this edition, brought in quite a few, and maybe you can tell me the number of cases, third-party stories, stories that he received, an onslaught of emails, as a matter of fact, from other experiencers once he released Devil's Den. And I think, Terry, your life has changed drastically since that time, wouldn't you say? (laughs) You know, absolutely. I I never saw myself morphing into this role of uh, an investigator. And I feel like that's kind of where I'm at. And, you know, I I received over 2,200 emails, well, as of today. Um, And out of that group, there was a core, there is a core of about 500 experiencers that, uh, and I don't judge the validity of anyone's experience, but uh, I'll just say there are 500 really, really credible, cool stories. And I distilled that down to 50 and then distilled it down to about 25. And those are the stories that are in the reckoning. Well, we're going to be talking about three of, you call them cases today, that I think are really worthy of kind of um, digging into. Look, we're trying to understand the dynamic that we're dealing with. And I don't know if it's dynamic, singular, but plural, the, 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 the landscape, if you will, the topography. Uh, not only of this planet, but God knows how many others we're inhabiting and not even realizing it. Terry, there's some really strange intersections of this reality and seemingly others that are even evident just in the three stories that I read. So I, I want to get into that. But, you know, before before we get right into the cases, we are going to be spending the crux of our time, guys, talking about three cases that we kind of handpicked. We had a couple of chats on the phone And uh, as a matter of fact, we were going to record a day earlier, but I said, Terry, you know what? Hold the phone. I think we're going to have to delay recording because I got to dig into this a bit. Some of the things that I'm reading here are just so curious, particularly when it comes to uh, other similarly situated cases. There's some common threads that we're going to talk about today. So hang with us, gang. But uh, before we get into the cases per se, Devil's Den State Park. Did a little bit of research on that too. Now, obviously, I'd become aware of it through your incredible story, the story that you uh, share about your harrowing journey that started out as a benign camping trip, right? With a, a dear now uh, deceased uh, friend, Toby. That's a whole other story. As a matter of fact, we'll put a link to the other interviews that we've done with Terry where he goes ad nauseum into uh, what happened there. But the whole Let's start with Devil's Den. You know, the first thing I looked up is where did it get its name from? Suspecting that I would find something that might lead to anomalies that have happened there. And it didn't really, what I found, uh, lead me to believe that it came from the fact that a lot of weird stuff has gone down. But there have been quite a few incidents that have gone down at Devil's Den. In fact, you highlight a couple in, in The Reckoning in your book, second book. That yeah. was it 2017. Talk about that. What what's up with that place? Sure, 2017. I made the decision I was going to write this book, uh, the first book, the incident at Devil's Den, in, during the calendar year of 2017. 
So I subscribed uh, to a digital copy of the local papers down there, two of them, one from Russellville, one, the other one is from the, uh, the big resort town. I can't think of anyway. Uh, I, I would comb through these uh, papers every day looking for anything in, involving Devil's Den. So just kind of like a random sample, right? And I found that there was a young lady um, who went, Monica Murphy was her name, and she went missing and was a missing person for seven days. And then they found her body at the base of a hundred foot cliff inside Devilston State Park. And followed up through, uh, uh, I made some friends in law enforcement there and, and they, uh, they said that the coroner was quick to rule it a suicide, but the woman had no history of depression and uh, you know had, had children at home. So it just sounds odd for a suicide. Uh, to me. That was the first one. The second one was a young man named uh, Rodney Letterman from Bartlesville, Oklahoma. And he and a friend drove down to Devil's Den State Park in a, in a truck and uh, they were going to walk the Butterfield Trail. And that's named the Butterfield Trail after their stagecoach line that ran through there in 1857 through 1860 when the uh, uh, war between the states uh interrupted things. And uh, while they were walking the trail, I've never been on the trail, but I understand it's really, really pleasant. It's, it's, it's an easy walk um, and, and it's, it's asphalt. And they're, they're walking the trail and Rodney Letterman had asthma and he has an asthma attack. And he says to his friend, oh man, I left my inhaler back in the, in the truck. W would you mind? And they were less than a mile away. So friend runs back to the truck, grabs the inhaler, runs back. He's back like, boom. And there's no Rodney Letterman. There's Rodney Letterman's phone on the pavement. But that's it. There's no Rodney Letterman. I, you know, I don't know about you. My phone's either in my hand or in my pocket. Mm -hmm. You know, I, it would never be on a, on a, uh, on a walking trail. Okay. So he's concerned. He yells for his friend. His friend was in no condition to walk too far because he was having an asthma attack. And uh, can't find him, calls the uh, park rangers, and what follows was a, um, a really big search effort. You know, FLIR helicopters from the National Guard with, you know, the forward-looking infrared radar, looking for a heat signature of a human being, flew all over Devilston State Park, 2,500 square acres, and thousands of volunteers plus you know, uh, rangers from Devil's Den State Park, the state employees. And then adjacent to that, to the east, is the uh, uh, Ozark National Forest, which is a federal mm -hmm. forest. And they sent rangers over to look, too. And nothing was ever found of Rodney. The family even paid for a private tracker to come in. Mm -hmm. And uh, they went. he went missing in August, and they stopped all the searching by the end of October. And I told the readers in my book, if I ever find out what happens to what happened to Rodney Letterman, I'll let you know. And in March of 2019, uh, a year or so after I published the book, um, I got a call from uh, a friend of mine in law enforcement down there who said, hey, they found Letterman. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, tell me the story. And the story is this. A young man and a young woman were walking the trail, and the young lady says to her friend, is that an albino turtle? Because on the, on the trail, what they did, they, they had these large logs 
that kind of uh, kind of marked the, the the boundary between the the trail and then the forest. And sitting on top of this log that was about 16 feet long is this triangular shape, what the woman thought was an albino turtle. And they walked over and the young man picked it up and he realized immediately that it was bone. And um, they called the, the uh, park rangers who came out and did, did the whole forensic thing to their benefit, did the forensic bagging of it. And uh, it was obviously piece of human bone. What it was, was it was the very top of Rodney Letterman's skull, skull cap. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know what, I mean, thinking as a prosecutor, uh, when, it, when, I, when I heard that story, I thought, you know, that sounds like a staged scene to me. Hmm. Somebody, how, do, how does that bone that has been bleached white in the sun, setting it right in the middle of the log, and broken in such a way that it's a symmetrical diamond shape. Okay. How does that work? How does that, how does that happen? Interesting. A symmetrical, see, I, I knew the story and I, I remember the old thinking, the couple thinking it was an albino turtle and it turned out to be the top of, unfortunately, his skull, but I didn't know it had this sort of symmetrical cut to it or geometric cut to it. Is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. It wasn't wasn't cut. It was broken, but it was broken with precision, if that makes sense. Is there an image of that, Terry, that can be shared? I don't have one. I wish we could find one. Here's my thought, and and this is a stretch, but isn't it interesting that if it seemed to form sort of this triangular shape, regardless of how it became that way, what does that resemble? Many craft that we see. Yeah. I don't know. It, it could be a stretch. But I mean, look, we're talking about weird, weird stuff. And it may have nothing to do with any kind of alien uh, interference. And yet, when I read that story in, in the second book, the result of that story, um, it made me think, uh, well, two things it made me think of cattle mutilations. Even though, right? Which, you know, of course, uh, the great work of Linda Moulton Howe, who's put so much research into trying to get to the bottom of the origin of these mutilations, despite the, you know, the mainstream's coverage of it saying, you know, uh, attacked by a, you know, another wild animal, et cetera, all sorts of things. But the, the uh, criteria or the, you know, the things that are left behind are really not left behind, bloodless carcasses you know, with not a trace of hemoglobin, nothing, just bone and precision is it in, in removing these organs. Now, this is a bit of a different situation because we just saw the top of a skull. That's, please forgive me, guys. I know that's not a pleasant thing to be talking about, but we're, we're kind of digging in a little bit. Um, this is why I wanted to get a little history on, we know your story. And when you look up Devil's Den and you, you you Google UFO UFO and Devil's Den, your story is going to come up first, right? Because you have brought a lot of attention to it. But uh, any correlation, and it looks like there's some strange things that have gone down there. The other thing is the work, I'm sure many of you have heard of the great work of investigator David Polites uh, with Missing 411. He's done amazing work. Have you connected with him in this regard? I know you know him. You know, I, I had planned to, uh, we had planned to meet um, in the 2020 Arkansas um, event that didn't, what happened virtually. Mm-hmm. So I, I never got the chance to, uh, to hook up with him. 
he's a busy guy and uh, he's hard to, he's hard to reach to be candid. Uh, you know, his fourth book in a series is called Devil is in the Details. Hmm. And uh, Devil's Den State Park is in there. Uh, with Catherine, Catherine Van Alst story that I talk about in my book uh, is in there. Uh, and, uh, he made, you know, he's kind of a data guy, you know, he works with spreadsheets and uh, a little bit like me, only better at it, I'm sure. And he, uh, he discovered that, uh, campgrounds, parks that have the name devil in them or, or Diablo have a much higher incidence of people going missing and never being found, mm -hmm. found deceased of under weird circumstances. And it was a statistically significant higher amount. So, you know, there's Devil's Tower, Devil's Clay, Devil's Lake. You know, there, there, there's tons of them. But those people, those places have more accidental drownings, more just weird, morbid stuff happen. You, you wonder what came first in this case, the chicken or the egg. And in other words, did the name, was the name derived from these areas having a high incident of, of, uh, strangeness like this, or did naming it attract these sorts of things? I, you know, I, I tend to think it's the former, but either way, really strange, really, really you know, strange. I spoke with, um, I, I tried to do that too, to find the genesis of mm. devil and devil's den. And there are two native American tribes that lay claim to that area. And I spoke with a medicine woman, uh, from Russellville, from the Kato or Kato, I've heard it pronounced both ways. She said Kato, C-A-T-O tribe. And uh, she says, yes, she says, our people has con have considered that just cursed ground. We'll transit through it to get from point A to point B, but we don't camp, hunt, fish, or hang out there. It's just, and I said, well, why is that? And she said, it's, it's, it's bad, 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 bad ground. She didn't use the word cursed. I shouldn't say that. She used the word bad. It's just bad land, bad ground. I think you and I have talked about, Terry, uh, certain areas that are can be referred to as having ley lines, certain energetic points based on longitude, latitude, a lot of different factors that have been studied extensively. And many of these, let's call them broadly hot spots, have been known for all sorts of activity, including positive things. There's an intensity in certain parts of our topography on this planet all over. You know, Seth, the, uh, the um, channel or, well, not the, the, the channel, Jane, the work of Seth from Jane Roberts, I don't know if you're familiar with the channeled work, talked about what he called coordination points that have appeared all over this planet in which certain things are more apt to happen versus not. So you have to wonder. The other thing, I don't think I realized that Devil's Den was even in Arkansas, duh. Or it just didn't catch it the first time. But think about the mineral deposits that are in. I also looked up some of the prevalent mineral deposits that are in that park. Limestone being very, very heavy deposits of limestone, calcite, and other crystalline forms. Let's go back to, I know I'm doing a lot of talking guys, but there's a lot of stuff. This is why I had to put it off a day to record because I wanted to dig in a bit. I found that to be curious as well. Could the energetic signature be Gugob stronger where you have an abundance of crystals? We're talking about Arkansas, guys. We know it's there. You know, yeah, I think we just lack the ability. 
we can't perceive it, you know, with through hearing or sight or sound or touch. Um, but I think a lot of people on some level can detect that. Just like some people will walk into a room where an argument, a heated argument just happened and get that vibe. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know about the caves in Devil's Den? I, a little bit. A little bit. In fact, what I had when I researched where the name came from, the den referred to those caves where people would hang out and hide out, I believe, many years yeah, and, ago. And, yeah, in the 18th century, uh, <laughs> it was a hideout. Uh, but curiously, since it's been a state park, those caves have been, they're locked up. There, there are iron gates that prevent anyone from entering. So you can't get into them. Interesting. Place is curious. Very, very curious. My God. Yeah. Let's move on to the cases because we got three to cover, and I think each one of them, you know, warrants the full discussion. We can't uh, do a full discussion on one today. We're going to cover three, but I want to start with uh, the first one. You've named them so appropriately. Once you read them, uh, the fir- first of how many did you say there were 20? twenty? I think there's twenty five. One is kind of a commercial for my friend's uh, uh, stage play, uh, Doug Ald stage play, but so. 24 real case case studies. Okay. And they're they're all different and yet they all have common themes. Let's start with the Christmas store. Oh, the yeah. Christmas store. I'm going to let you go through each of them, Terry, after you uh, get, give us a little bit of a, a, a chronology, not chronology or context, I want to say, for what's happened. And then we're going to talk about it a little bit. So tell tell the audience about the Christmas store. What happened there in you Nevada? Know, the, yeah, there, there, there's a reason. This is number one. When I organize these uh, stories, you know, they're not necessarily in any specific order, but I wanted the the first one to be special. And this is kind of special. I got contacted by uh, email from a 76 year old woman from Henderson, Nevada, who said that she had an interesting story about something that happened to her and her husband in March of 1968. Uh, She was married to a, uh, nephrologist who worked at the hospital in Las Vegas. And uh, she had family in Reno, about 200 and some miles north of there. And uh, they also had a close friend who owned a car dealership there. And, uh, you know, doctors work 60, 70 hours a week. And but he had a special arrangement where every month he was guaranteed a four day weekend. And uh, during that four-day weekend, they would hop in the car and make the trip to Reno and visit their friends and and just have a nice weekend. And the drive was something they actually looked forward to because, you know, they didn't get to spend a lot of time together. And that that drive time was special to them because it was a chance for them to catch up on stuff, you know. Uh, And they hadn't been married that long. So... In March of 1968, they decided to take their trip, and as they usually did, uh, her husband, Paul, got stuck in the hospital. Uh, Her name, uh, she asked me to refer to her as Olivia. Uh, So they they were three hours late leaving because husband got stuck in the hospital. And uh, they they started off uh, about 6 p.m., And about the halfway mark, not exactly, but close, halfway between Las Vegas and Reno, there's a little town called Tonopah or Tunapah, depending on how you pronounce it. I've heard it pronounced both ways. Uh, I I just say Tonopah. 
called the, um, when she, she and her husband used to go, it was called the stagecoach. And it was like a typical truck stop. Um, so you could get gas, you get, to, you know, they had a nice restaurant. Uh, the place is still there. It's now called the station. And she said that uh, they, they stopped there on, the, on this March 1968 trip. They had a nice dinner, filled the car up with gas. I asked, did you have anything to drink? You know, did you, did you do any drugs? Did you, either one of you guys wear glasses? You know, were the windows of the car clean? You know, yes, yes, yes. Well, no and yes. Uh, all the right answers. Uh, so they're headed north. They're headed to Reno, and they're just a few miles outside of town, and they see a glow on the horizon. And uh, they said, hmm, what's that? what is that? And they drove up, and this, she said, this was 1968, Christmas stores, a store devoted, you know, to the holiday of Christmas alone was kind of a rarity. Uh, I mean, she had never heard of it before, somebody opening a Christmas store. Uh, but she said that this little building about the size of a small McDonald's, perfectly square, set back from the highway just a little bit. And she said that there was insanely bright lights pouring through the windows. And, um, but they didn't see any cars or trucks. And she said that the, the, she and her husband both agreed that along the top it, it said uh, in green neon Christmas. And they both agreed that there were um, Christmas tree lights, the kind that twinkle, the kind that are static, the kind that blink, uh, all manner of Christmas lights wound all around the building and kind of a front porch kind of thing where you could put, uh, you know, some chairs and sit outside and whatever. Uh, and, she remembers it being a big, a brick structure, red brick. And her husband recalled it being uh, rustic barnwood. So they agree on just about everything. And she asked her husband, pull over. I want to see. It looks like they're open. And they're just curious. And he pulls off the road. And they both are staring at this thing. Now, she admits that she kind of spaced out. Um and she said, Paul, pull in. And he says, well, where? There's no driveway. And that's when they realized that there's no driveway. There's no place to park. There is no, it's just sage and sand and sage for sand, you know, just, it's just desert in front of the store. And uh, she thought, well, that's just crazy. And Paul's like, yeah, we've wasted enough time with this. Let's get back on the road. So they did. Um, but she said there were a few seconds there where she kind of, quote, zoned out. And I, you know, I asked her, I said, do you think you had missing time? And her answer to me, I spoke with her by phone. Her answer to me was, how would one know? And, you know, that's a, that's a pretty valid question. Mm. How would one know? You know? So they continued on their trip and she fell asleep something she never never did before and slept soundly until they arrived in Reno and they were late and they were tired and they went to bed. They didn't bother to unpack. She doesn't know what time it was. She paid no attention to the time and they slept until 10 the following morning when their friends woke them up with a telephone call 
And she said her words, she felt kind of out of sorts for the day, but, uh, you know, she eventually <laughs> recovered and they had a nice weekend. And uh, on the way back home, she says, Paul, but let's stop by that Christmas store that we passed. And he's like, yeah, good idea. You know, that's, that's place has kind of been on my mind. You know, I, I wish she'd had the presence of mind to give her husband a sheet of paper. She'd take a sheet of paper and say, okay, we're both going to draw what we saw and not compare notes and see what the images look like. But, but unfortunately they didn't do that. And um, when they drove back, there was no Christmas store. And they're like, oh, well, we had to pass it up, right? So they do a U-turn, they go back around, and there is no Christmas store. <laughs> and uh, they went home, and that that just bugged them. And it was, uh, quote, on their mind. And she said the following weekend, we went back and looked for it, and uh, it truly it, it didn't exist. It, didn't exist. It, it wasn't there. Yeah. Didn't you say in the book too, Terry, that they had asked someone, did they ask someone at the restaurant and, and they said, I have no idea what you're talking about, Christmas store? They did. They had lunch at the restaurant and uh, she hmm. asked the, uh, not the waitress, but the hostess, when did, when did uh, the city build uh, the Christmas store hmm. north end of town? And she says, Christmas store, I don't know what you're talking about. And uh, she said, I don't know of any new businesses, but the guy that was there is the, I don't know if he was a manager or owner, but his name was Yang. And he's, she said, talk to Mr. Yang because he's on the Chamber of Commerce. And if there's anything to do with the new business in uh, Tunapa, he will know about it. And they invited him over to sit down and ask him. And he's like, no. He says, there, there are no new businesses. He said, I, I would know. I would know. And there is nothing. Okay. I don't know what you saw. But you know what she said to me? She said, 76-year-old women don't make up fairy tales. And that, that really impressed me. That And she was so, so sharp and articulate. Um, and she said, you know, I, I don't know what I saw, but I think it's important. And I want, uh, I want people to know. Well, we appreciate Olivia, for, for that, you know, there's just so many individuals who we could call completely credible for whatever, however we view that to be intelligent, you know, clear, clear thinking, what, all of those things that they hit that criteria. Um, at some point, we have to just say something has happened here. Now, what I want to get into is what that could be. Now, I know that what's really great, you guys, about the way uh, Terry presents these cases is he gives the cases just as he told you, but then he comes in with his own analysis on what this could be, This his hypothesis, I should say. And you did have a hypothesis. I'd like you to share uh, yours. And then a couple of things I want to open up for conversation about some thoughts that I had. What did you come, what conclusion did you come to? If you're enjoying this episode, along with all of the subjects that we cover here on Higher Journeys, then I invite you to join our members-only community on Patreon, where we go even deeper into the conversations with the guests that you know and love. Not only does your membership ensure that we can keep this work going and growing, but you'll also get immediate access to our exclusive after shows. Get up close and personal with the guests of the show, along with many other member perks. So click on the link below to join now or visit higherjourneys.com where you'll find the Patreon link. We'll see you on the journey. Thanks. 
But here's, here's what I did. I said, uh, after I asked the question about missing time, I said, Olivia, do you think what you what you saw that night could have been a spaceship? And she laughs. She feigns a laugh, like, ha, 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 ha. And then says, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. She did say, both she and her husband, only spoke about this incident one one more time. Right. And then it was kind of an off-the-table conversation. And that's a very com- common phenomenon, yes. And uh, they both had nightmares. Her husband, Paul, would never discuss his nightmares. Olivia said that she would have nightmares where she was in the car looking at the Christmas store and there was movement behind the, the windows, now, indistinct movement like... Uh, silhouetted forms uh and she mm-hmm. said they were kind of humanoid uh you know because she could see arms and occasionally a head it could have been a person could have been something else but that mental image in that dream she flips out and she has that dream it's been recurrent and she's like you know i don't know why that frightens me so because shadows you know in silhouette against a window shouldn't be that frightening but there's clearly some hallmarks here of something that frightened them. Let's do this. I want to bring in a couple of elements and we can toss this around. I can see as we're looking at the time, we still have to get through two more cases, but here's a couple of things I want to note about Tonopah. I'll call it Tonopah when I did a little bit of research. I mean, my first inclination, you, you, you think of Nevada desert, military installations, area 51 folks, right? And that's exactly what I did. I wanted to see how far Tonopah was from Area 51, barely 70 miles northwest of Groom Lake, which is where Area 51 is uh, allegedly located. As a matter of fact, what I found is that Tonopah has its own test range that that's also referred to as Area 52, a restricted military installation with a restricted mission range. So there has been some activity there. Now, again, we're, we're hypothesizing. Clearly, let me just put it on the record. But when you're trying to, you know, parse uh, something as odd as this, you want to see if you can make loca- connections when it comes to the location, just like we did with Devil's Den, Arkansas, the crystals, et cetera. Could there have been some shenanigans, not shenanigans, but some secret experimentation going on? I thought of something like Project Bluebeam. Are you familiar with that, guys? Journeyers, are you, I, I'm sure you are, Terry. You're familiar with the with what's called Project Bluebeam, essentially the simulated holographic technology that could simulate a, a religious event, a second coming, if you will. It's been applied to other things too. The bottom line is laser technology or high-level holographic technology, where and I'm sure it's been experimented on. If there's validity to it. Could this have been some sort of an experiment to see if you could holographically project something that isn't really there? Question mark. Just a question mark. That was sure. right. Of course you could. Absolutely you could, I think. I mean, I think that's been demonstrated. So, yeah. you know, you could. I mean, you, you scratch your head and wonder what would be the reason for that. Well, who knows? Um, testing it to see how how it can affect and apparently you know what with the way they reacted the nightmares you know a lot of the residual effects it could be that blue beam technology if it's a real phenomenon 
could have more than just a, it may be more than a visual experience, but an experience that can actually alter the senses and alter the perceptions of the individuals, even after they've witnessed whatever they've witnessed. Just a thought. However, the fact that it could have been an abduction and what has been referred to as a screen memory is really what comes to mind, which really kind of supports your analysis, I think. You know, I'm glad that we chose these three these three uh, cases because these three have so much in common when you look at them, and I think it'll become more evident as we get into it. Um, but yeah, go ahead. Let's go to case two. I'm glad you brought that up because that'll move us along a little bit. And I'm going to apologize in advance. I'm just going to. I should have put this as a as a uh, a caveat for this show. This is more of a conversation. So in case you notice me doing a little bit more talking, this is, you know, this is my thing. And Terry and I have worked together before. So we're just kind of having a back and forth. So I'm participating a little bit more in this particular show because it's just so fascinating. Um, let's go to bring in the clowns. I love the way you titled these. Number two, bring in the clowns. Gentleman named uh, Roger. Roger tell us about bringing the clowns and then we're going to immediately go back to case one and see if we can connect some dots there too. Well, bringing the clowns has a lot of similarities to my story, a lot of similarities to my cousin Gerald's story uh, who saw little clowns in his room. And it goes back to, you know, I saw monkeys. I think that these things, whatever they are, wherever they come from, have a way to appear in front of children that the child will find most benign. I've had people tell me they saw Disney characters and owls and deer and raccoons and, you know, all manner of things that a child would not be frightened of, but uh, maybe he, he or she saw them in their true form. You know, it'd be a different story. Uh, Roger comes from a, from a, a family. Mom, his dad was an engineer. His mom was a CPA and he grew up in a, uh, he grew up around smart people. You know, and, uh, you know, I think he was a smart kid Um, when he when he was when I say kid, I mean, uh, age uh, five. And he was he was being tickled in bed by unseen hands. Something was tickling him. And it wasn't unpleasant. It was just the way, you know, if a human were doing it to you in a playful manner. Uh, that's all it was. But he developed a bunch of phobias. And uh, I, I have some phobias myself. I, and, I, and I contribute mine to PTSD from the event that I had because they relate to that. But I won't go into that. Um, but this about this time, he developed, quote, a tremendous fear of clowns, deformed people, people with mental and physical disorders, um, scared him to death. And I, when he'd go shopping with his parents, he'd be out going somewhere. The parents would have to go in and make sure that, you know, the coast was clear, that there was no one in there that would frighten him because he would just absolutely uh, flip out if he didn't have the all clear. And when he was 17 or 18, when he'd drive his car, he said he had to pull over occasionally because he couldn't feel confined anymore. He felt, felt confined when traveling in the uh, in an automobile, and would pull over and open the, the hood of the car and stick his head in just to feel like he was outside and, and free of that confined space. And uh, I, I think that's really interesting. I'd like to know where that where that phobia originated. 
And then what's really, really uh, blew me away was he is working on a, uh, in a, in a high rise building and around the corner, there came this object that he described as being um, silver in color. He said it was like tinfoil wrapped around putty. And he was up high. I don't know what floor he was on, but top floor of a high rise is what he said. Office windows with a beautiful view. And the silver undulating blob comes around the corner. And he describes feeling calm, just feeling at peace with it, which is not that typical human reaction to something like this. Uh, yeah, so he, oh, and his daughter, he and his daughter were, uh, walking down a residential street near their home and a Asian man walked up to him and said, uh, your daughter is very special. Her eyes, it was in her eyes. And then he said that there were many ships in the sky right now. And after a minute or two, he just walked away and carried on with his walk. That's really crazy. And that's what triggered my memory of our, my 2007 trip to Chicago, where I was in a, uh, uh, a big name bookstore downtown and, and looking for bargain books, you know, because I'm cheap. And the place is packed. It's like a week before Christmas. And I'm looking for a book. And out of my peripheral vision, I saw this woman black woman about maybe five seven uh kind of kind of dressed kind of shabbily uh with reading glasses on and she walked up to me and she said they used to take you too <laughs> they took you when you were little and i just about lost it <laughs> i really did and i i wanted to say well pardon me madam who are you you know I mean, I'll buy you a cup of coffee. Let's sit down. Let's talk. Um, and she turned around, just melted into the into the uh, crowd. And by the time I find my wife, I never saw her again. But God, what a, what an opportunity lost! I mean, I would have loved to have said to her, "Let's talk." You know, <clears throat> reality. Familiarity with her too. I, I, I should mention that too. I, I I felt a familiarity. It didn't seem like she was Did a you? perfect stranger. Interesting. What I started to say is sometimes the universe will just give you these um, little, little, uh, what would you call them? Quick hits of, of this sort of cryptic, a cryptic phrase that's just enough to keep you engaged in the contemplation of what the hell this is all about. You know, you're not meant to know the whole story. It's, it's making you say that, say it again. Maybe we're supposed to figure it out. Maybe we're supposed to figure it out because obviously this this was quite quite a few years ago now, right? You you you're still thinking about this, still wondering, causing us to explore and investigate the nature of reality. There's something going on here. Okay, well let's let's take the the clown uh, 
bringing the clowns, you call it, with the the case of, um, did you say Roger? The case of Roger, yeah. Roger. Here are a couple of things. I don't know that you mentioned this uh, just now in the recap, but uh, isn't it true that Roger's father is uh, was ex-military, retired military, and he felt that his father had a bit of PTSD? And, sure. and there were a couple of strange things going on there. Let's state the obvious. This uh, inescapable connection with so many abduction cases, families particularly, in which uh, a parent typically is in the military and may, in fact, have some ties with some top secret programs involving UFO technology. Did that ever occur to you in this? It did, but only after I, I didn't think of it in time to include it in the book. What I thought about uh, and did, failed to mention was the familial aspect of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. It does run in families because I have plenty of examples of that because it yes. is it is it is common. Um, yeah. 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 You know, I wonder where dad's PTSD came from. Well, certainly wartime and uh, you can attest to, you know, being, um, I don't know if you were ever on the front lines or not. W were you? No. Okay. But you were in the military and you did see, you did some service and I'm sure you know people that, that literally were on the, on the battlefield to, to some extent. That's, that's really where the PTSD is. <laughs> So, I mean, certainly that's justifiable on its own if that were the case. But it's just interesting that it was brought up in the context of this story. Um, so we could speculate about that. We would be speculating, of course, but there could very well be some not only familial or not only military, but familial connection. I've, I've taken many stories of individuals that have shared with me where they've even made the connection that they felt that their own encounters may have some significance to their parent, their family member being in the military and what they did. So that was one thing that came to me. The other thing is something called uh, fear of clowns is a very, very common uh, phobia. It's actually called coulrophobia, C-O-U-L-R-O phobia. And I, I, did a bit of study on this when I presented my lecture, uh, Unconscious Contact, back in the 2020, 2019, 2020, I can't remember now, uh, making the case that clowns could very well be a common screen memory, again, for the beings that are, that are visiting. So, uh, you know, my cousin, my cousin Gerald was absolutely terrified of clowns and at, at, the, at the same time that I'm going through this uh, traumatic event in, in my home in St. Louis, Missouri with the monkeys, he's down in north central Arkansas, curiously, where he lived, and he has these diminutive little clowns uh, come into his room in the middle of the night. Now, he, he shares a room with twin brothers who are in bunk beds. They never wake up. They never see a thing, just like I had these monkeys in my room and lights through the window and my sisters were in a uh, bedroom across the hall. Never saw a thing. But uh, yeah, I felt so, so sorry for poor Gerald because his parents, they were, they were, uh, they were very uh, pious religious people and they saw this as demonic rather than extraterrestrial. It wasn't paranormal. It was a question of good or evil. And uh, I think that that made it harder for um, my cousin to process it because sure. he, yeah, he thought it was his fault. 
For seeing, for having the fear of clouds or for seeing these beings that he talked about? Yeah, he thought it was his fault because he, he told me that the, uh, the minister uh, pulled him aside. Well, they, of course, the congregation prayed for him. So everybody in the congregation knew that he was having these visions. And the, um, the minister pulled him aside and said, you know, you know, sometimes, Gerald, we, we think bad thoughts and these bad th thoughts, that's what brings them demons in. You open that door, you bring them in. So to me, you know, that's putting the burden on this poor kid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he did. He, he, felt, he felt responsible. And I said, look, uh, you're not responsible. Uh, yeah. You're not responsible. When we have conversations like this, Terry, and you and I have had several at this point, all involving way beyond lights in the sky, way beyond the investigation of that, but really investigating the common themes and what people go through after these experiences. And I'll say for the record, and I'll repeat it again, this is not for the sake of novelty. This is a, for the sake of survival, because whatever is going on, we are an integral part of it. And I've heard way too many stories of individuals like your cousin, Jer Jerry, who has suffered enormously. The, the third case that we're going to get into has a similar tone. People whose lives are turned upside down because of these experiences. The experiences, and in many cases, they're not harrowing. They can be pleasant, but in, at a minimum, they are out of context for how we live our lives. But furthermore, when you get grief from family members and, and, and religious institutions that want to put it in a box, call it something else, and moreover, blame you, can you imagine what these individuals are going through? So with that, let's go to the carnival ride because it's going to bring in sort of this uh, very important and somewhat tragic element that I think we need to be paying attention to. This involves Molly and Julie, two sisters that had a very unique experience when they were young girls on their grandpa's uh, farm, I believe. Yes. I, I got an email from this woman uh, uh, and I refer to her as Julia. And uh, I was impressed with the way that she told the story of what happened to her and her younger sister, Molly. Um, and what happened was that once a year, they lived in Oklahoma, once a year they would go visit their grandparents, their maternal grandparents who had a nice farm uh, with a single oil well that guaranteed them a college education. And um, the layout was like this. There was a long drive up to the, up to the house. And then there was a um, huge oak tree in the front yard manicured beautifully and there was what's called a burn and it's a burn is just a uh, uh, a pile of, of dirt uh, like a you know you could use a berm as a as a uh, as a dam to keep water out but this berm was used there was a road on top of it and it's it divided the front yard from the backyard and uh, the girls could play in the front yard all they wanted but they couldn't go up and over that berm because in the back of the farm, there was, you know, animals, machinery. Um, but most notably, there was an eight foot farm pond uh, that would just swallow these little girls up. And neither of the girls could swim, but they knew the rules and they were there every year. Uh, Julia was nine, her sister Molly was seven, and they knew the rules. They couldn't, they couldn't cross the berm. 
And this was the first year that they were allowed to play out in the front yard without supervision. So they're playing, they're chasing butterflies, they're doing stuff two little girls would just enjoy. And uh, they're sitting down. They went, went to the house and got some water. So they kind of checked in with the adults. They come out and Molly cocks her head to the side and said, do you hear that? And she listens and they could hear calliope music. I mean, just signature music of a, of a traveling circus. And, you know, back in the day, traveling circuses were a big thing. And, uh, you know, maybe playing the calliope on a, on a, on a, from a rail car to get the town's attention. Who knows? I don't know. But they heard this calliope music and they both are like, oh boy, it's a circus. And they're, they're excited. And Molly says, let's go. Uh, let's go over to Burma and see if we can find it. And, you know. Being, being the uh, being the big sister, Julia says, "No, you know we can't we can't go over the berm." And Molly and I love this argument. Molly makes the argument. She says, "Yeah, we can't go across the berm, but Grandpa didn't say we couldn't go to the top and just look over." So Julia's like, "Yeah, okay, let's do that." So they go to the top of this berm and they're looking, and of course, there's nothing to see uh, at first. Uh, and as, as they walk over the berm, they're like looking for a train in the distance. And, and in front of them, there is a carousel, um, you know, called maybe sometimes called a merry-go-round, you know, with the horses on sticks that go up and down. And it's a rotating platform, circular platform. And she said that there was this carousel that was three times as big as any carousel she'd ever seen in her life, that it was covered with multicolored lights, and that it was spinning fast, faster than it should have been, were her words, as nobody could get on it or get off of it. Uh, she didn't see anybody on the horses, but she said the horses looked alive. And I'm like, okay, and tell me more. What, you know? And she says, well, the thing was off the ground. How did you know it was off the ground? She said that it was off the ground four or five feet because it cast a shadow. It was right around lunchtime, right around noon. And there was a perfect uh, round circular shadow underneath it, which makes it sound like a solid object to me. But they uh, are just mesmerized by this thing. Um, they're not scared. They're not frightened. They are entertained. And they laid back on the grass holding hands and just watch this thing. And then they disappeared. And grandparents got concerned, mom got concerned, parents come out, grandparents come out, and there's no little girl. Of course, there is, there's, no, there's no giant carousel either. There's just nothing. So they are afraid that the little girls have been, you know, they might be in a pond. They might be out in the corn somewhere. Who knows? And they're calling them. And they, they call neighbors. They call the VFW hall. They get a bunch of the sheriff's department. They get a bunch of people involved. And they're all looking for these little girls. And just coincidentally, down this long driveway, someone made a wrong turn, drove in, and realized, no, this isn't the right farm, and turned around and drove out. Well, the grandmother and the mother just happened to see this car driving away up that long um, driveway 
and made the assumption maybe the girls were kidnapped. And the sheriff found the car. It was just somebody visiting a neighbor a neighbor's farm, and they made a wrong turn. So that was a nothing. And finally, they're missing for four hours. And the sheriff says to the grandfather, "I got a, you know, I got some dogs coming." Uh, try to catch a scent, but he said, also, I'm bringing a John Bullock and, uh, you know, two guys with the long poles. Um, and, you know, Grandpa just breaks down because he knows what that means. So they put the John Bullock in the water, and these two guys that, uh, according to Grandma, were experienced doing this, they're stirring up the water with these long sticks to see if maybe by natural buoyancy, you know, little bodies would pop up. And while they're in the process of doing this, one of the guys operating this John boat, doing the stirring, uh, says that he was he saw uh, an area of grass in front of him that was the backside of the berm, and there was nothing there. And he looked down, and he looked up again, and there they were. Both girls were there. They were lying on the side of the berm, holding hands, and out. I mean, they're just unconscious, uh, and they're dry as a bone. You know, they they, they didn't never fell in the water, um, and they just popped back into existence. So I'm going to jump ahead a little bit and kind of get to the to the real point of the thing. According to Julia, they came away from this thing two changed little girls. You know, they used to be close, like sisters are close, and after this, she said that you know. Her words were, you know, it was like there was a berm between me and my sister and Molly. And she said we were still sisters and we still loved one another, but we were, there, was a, there was a little bit of, uh, they weren't as close. Uh, and the other odd thing was this, was uh, there was a change in both of their behaviors. Uh, Molly, uh, who had always been, you know, the nice little girl, good little girl, suddenly becomes obstinate. And she tells her parents, I want a bedroom of my own. I don't want to share a bedroom with Julia anymore. And uh, became unreasonable about it. And Molly's grades dropped at school. And uh, she eventually was diagnosed as bipolar, uh, treated with medication. Um, but she didn't have any of these symptoms before. And Julia blames Molly's demise on whatever happened to them. Mm -hmm. at grandpa's farm now she on the other hand so she's passed so just to be clear molly how old was molly when she passed away so let me see she would have been 50-ish you know and 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 julia did pass uh julia's uh partner sent me a nice email to tell me that about her passing mm. uh, i think she passed in december of 2019 nice. Yeah, she, and she passed of pancreatic cancer. Her sister Molly passed of breast cancer. So I don't know if there's a family history of cancer or not. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's associated with their experience right. or not. But Julia struggled with math. You know, she just hated the subject. Prior, to, prior to their encounter. Prior to the encounter, math was just a puzzle for her. She goes back. This happened during the summer. She goes back to school next to the following year. And they start the year with fractions. And she's like, oh, this is easy. Hmm. And uh, she was just a math genius. I mean, she just had no problems with math whatsoever. 
and did really, really well at school where she was an average student before this happened. So she made her life as a, uh, a nurse anesthetist mm -hmm. and, uh, and made a good living doing that. She said she wanted to be a physician, right? Isn't this the one that said she wanted to and kind of kicked herself for not going on to medical school, I think, or? She did. Know? Yeah. You know, nursing is a, is a very honorable, great profession, as she said. Absolutely. She won't qualify it. But, but she said, if, if I knew that I had this much uh, ability I would have set my sights higher. Mm -hmm. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing uh, wrong with that. But you know, she had some problems, uh, like a lot of people do, you know, with a glass of wine or a shot of tequila now and then to help her sleep. Um, and she had a uh, shoulder injury from tennis and developed a, a taste for pain medication. Mm -hmm. Okay. I was taking Dargon off the cart because it was one of the one of the medications that she said weren't wasn't a controlled item. I don't think they make it anymore. I think it was taken off the market for some reason, or at least she said. Um, and then she got in trouble with uh, she had as a as a nurse anesthetist she had access to fentanyl patches, and she actually stole a couple. And then uh, she was in the OR one day, and uh, they she came across as being impaired to some level. But there was nobody to take her place. So she had to finish the uh, patient. Good outcome. Um, but you clearly know, problems, clearly problems, clearly. We know that we can't we can't uh, assign all the reasons that people uh, turn toward uh, dependency on uh, drugs because they've been abducted. And yet we've heard so many cases of alleged abductions or encounters that were harrowing that encouraged this kind of behavior after the fact, not uncommon at all. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, just like my friend Toby could not sleep just like me. I had my struggles too. And it's fear of the night. I still sleep with a light on. You still do. I still do, you know, and things have to be just right. They, uh, you know, the, the blinds and the curtains have to be closed and the bedroom door has to be open and the closet door must be closed. And all these OCD kind of things, um, you know, are, are still with me. So I kind of, I get it, you know. The, you know, this story ends. Mm -hmm. It has not, not too pleasant of an ending. Uh, Molly and Julia only spoke about this one time when uh, Molly was in her 30s, I think. And it was a real brief conversation. And I don't actually remember the context of it, content, but it was very brief. And then it was like, no, we're not talking about this. And then when, when uh, Molly came down with breast cancer and was in her final days of her, of her disease, she moved to Louisiana to be where near Julia and was in hospice care there. Julia took some time off on the Family Medical Leave Act to spend time with her sister. And she says most of the time they just sat there in uncomfortable silence. Hmm. And uh, she asked her sister after a couple days, do you want to talk about what happened at Grandpa Jeb's? And they were holding hands. She withdrew her hand, put both her hands under her chin like this and turned toward the wall and said no. And then 
she passed some hours later. So that's that's a pretty on your deathbed. That's a pretty strong statement that that you can't talk about. So, this this vehement or vehemency vehemence of silence that we we hear in so many of these kinds of stories not just with the uh in, in all cases with the experiencers but even family members of the experiencers it seems like there's a, a residual effect somehow i believe in one of these stories that was the case where wasn't it in this this particular one that i'm thinking of the carnival ride that the family didn't even want to talk about it after a period of time family did not talk about it it was it was a taboo topic well, certainly it's not a pleasant topic, but it seems like there's this hands-off that's a, it's almost paranoia or mandate. They're mandated not to talk about it. We hear about this constantly in these kinds of cases. Yeah, and you know, you would think the opposite would be true. You would think that normally people, there was a good outcome to this. They found the girls, they were okay. It's the kind of thing that over Thanksgiving dinner, they got to say, oh, you remember when Julia and Molly, you know, right? Um, and everybody has a laugh and... and uh, you know, that's the way it should be, but it's not. It's not. It's not. And, you know, I never spoke, I never, other than to my wife, I never told a soul. I never talked about my event with anyone. Right. Until 2017. Right. And I, we, the event happened in 1977. Yeah. Yeah. The commonalities are too, too big, too blatant to ignore. And as I'm looking at these three that we picked, out of 20 some odd cases in your book, look at the theme that just kind of occurred to me, bringing the clowns, the Christmas store, the carnival ride. Each of them have this sense of, you know, whimsy to them, of, you know, Disney, of things that we would normally would make us gleeful. So, Again, this idea of something trying to trick something or someone trying to trick the experiencer into thinking it's something else when it's much more intense. And I've always been perplexed, Terry. You know, we talk about your experience with Betty, this being that you recall having many encounters with and her attire being so wonky. You know, all of these sort of scenes, these these very exacerbated, exaggerated. It's almost like if there are other beings that are doing this, they're trying they're they're trying to mimic or emulate some of the things that they assume we would find amusing, uh, but they seem to be getting it wrong somehow. The clothes that don't fit and and clowns that they're they're clowns, but they're kind of not. They 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 still have this this something that they didn't quite get right. You know, the carnival, um, the horses were, you know, on a, on a carousel, but they looked real. Do you know what I'm talking about? Just some just strange yeah. attempts. Yeah, like, at, it yeah. speaks to the level of their influence over us, number one. That also sure. speaks to the level of the fact that these are non-human entities trying to emulate common human experiences and just not quite making it. And you got it perfectly said. That seems glaring to me in all of the cases that I've heard. Many, many, many. Yeah. Will we ever get to the bottom of this, guys? You know, there were other aspects of uh, particularly, I believe, story number one that I wanted to get into. We're not going to be able to, 
we're not going to be able to uh, do it in this uh, segment. We're going to have to wind down. We're actually a little over time, but we are, as you know, going to the Patreon after show where I know Terry and I were going to talk about, maybe we still can. You wanted to share uh, some of your insights on anomalies on the dark side of the moon. Uh, we're going to go over and talk about that a little bit. But the other thing, if we can fit it in, is to maybe go back to that case number one, because I have a little bit of a theory and you have a story you want to share uh, that may bring in another uh, aspect of strangeness of what happened where the, that supposed Christmas store was. It has to do with parallel realities and a story that you can share uh, about something that might lend credence to that. So we're going to take all of that over to the after show, guys, because we are definitely uh, running a little uh, running a little over time. Uh, Terry, this was this was great as always having you, and I know we'll have you back. Uh, so, any final thoughts? Any final thoughts on what we just talked about, and just to sum it up before we move on to the after show? Yeah, just real quick. Um, I'm just blown away at how many people there are out there that have a story to tell, that may be reticent to tell it. They may not remember all of it, but it's there. And and you made a statement. We were talking a couple of days ago, and you said. Something like, you know, there are a lot of people that are abducted. And then you said, who knows? Maybe all of us have been abducted. Mm -hmm. And, you know, can't rule that out. Yeah. I I feel strongly that this is a phenomenon that's far more widespread than we, than we understand. But, again, is it? Rather than saying, making a definitive statement because we don't know. Um, yeah. But on that note, um, yeah, the the... The investigation continues. The exploration continues, and let us all do it with uh, with an open mind, um, a discerning spirit, and uh, a, a willingness to get to the bottom of all of this. Because uh, we we have skin in the game. You've heard me say this before. So, with that, Terry, I thank you. Listen, just a couple of quick announcements before we go. Uh, we talk all things UFO here on this in, in on this side of. Uh, things with me, with Alexis and Higher Journeys. I'm going to be doing a lot of that. I'm, in fact, I'm going to have to take a couple of weeks off from doing the regular Higher Journeys show because guess what, Terry? We're about to go back to filming for the History Channels. The proof is out there. Yes, I've made it to season three, guys. I think I can say that. Well, I was putting it out there. Now we're about to get ready to film some brand new shows. So uh, I've got to get the get the script, not just the script, the, the, the stories, the research, all the stuff that goes into it. And we'll be filming uh, in a, a little short while. So I am going to have to take a little bit of a hiatus, uh, but we'll be back with some brand new episodes of The Proof is out there. So just want to give you a heads up. But you know what I'm going to do, Terry? Speaking of dudes that go there, we, you and I both know Richard Dolan, who's been, he's been covering a lot of different things. He will forever always be known as the UFO historian and more. But I've got a great conversation that I had with Richard a few years ago. Uh, on location that I think I'm going to grab a very poignant highlight and put up for y'all uh, while we're taking a little time off uh, that has to do with, I'm just going to put it this way, has to do with a lot of the events that are going on right now. So timely. Mm -hmm. This is a conversation we had, I believe, in 2017. I'm not going to take it any further than that. You will see when you watch this segment, but I'm going to put that up for you to hear. There are a couple of that I think are worth revisiting. Uh, within our current uh, state of uh, the world that I think you'll find extraordinary. Richard, by the way, Richard Dolan is doing some fantastic work. I'm going to give you a plug, dude. And can you please return my call? 
<laughs> just so you know, <laughs> I love you, Richard. Uh, but he's been doing some great work. He's a busy guy uh, over on his uh, Richard Dolan uh, YouTube channel on some of his purview on some of what's what's happening around us right now so much. So please check that out. Check our channel out. Check us out at Patreon. Please, as always, uh, we appreciate your support and can continue that. Keep us going uh, because it's the only way we're going to remain with you, the journeyers. We love you so much and we thank you. And Terry, as always, website, Terry, before we wind it down. I know. Do you have a website? I do. I do. It, it, it's terrylovelace.com. Uh, terrylovelace.com. And if cool. anyone would like to talk to me, uh, you know, I answer all my emails, uh, and it's just uh, terrylovelace at yahoo.com. And my books are available on Amazon and Kindle and print, and I did an audio book for both books. So, um, love and, it. Yeah. You're a busy so, man. I just thought of this, speaking of your books. So we're going over to Patreon right now. We're going to have the after show. But in addition, included in uh, one of the membership tiers, Terry was uh, kind enough to share with us in, in total the three cases that we talked about so you can read them, you know, word for word and come to your own conclusion or, you know, take that time to really delve in and, and, and have a think about it. So those three cases will be available in our members only section over on Patreon. Thank you, Terry, for that. That's great, great stuff. I'm going to read them again. I've, I've read a couple of them twice because they're, they're that good. So anyway, that's it for now, guys. Appreciate you. Love you. And we will talk to you soon. Thanks for tuning in to Higher Journeys. Take care.